0: In our study of 1 Samuel, we have seen that Israel's King Saul, though he had so much potential as a young leader, made some major moral and spiritual missteps. In our text today, we're going to see that he literally crashes and burns. I think it's important for us to realize that spiritual failure rarely happens in an instant. No one ever wakes up some morning and says, I think I'll become an apostate. We're going to observe that spiritual defection is almost always accompanied by slow but discernible steps. In our scripture text today, we're going to observe a number of actions that Saul took that caused his godly mentor, Samuel, to abandon him. And more importantly, caused God to remove him as king. See how many of these steps of failure you can spot as we read our text today, 1 Samuel 15. The chapter is quite lengthy, so I'm going to not ask you to stand. But I want you to pay close attention to the storyline. It's not difficult to follow. And Samuel said to Saul... child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Liam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag And the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs. And all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen, to sacrifice them to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, you are not the head of the tribes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and re- return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Our chapter opens with an encounter between the prophet Samuel and King Saul, in which God reveals his will to Saul in unambiguous terms, but Saul chooses to obey only in part. Samuel calls Saul's attention to the word of the Lord a command from God namely that he totally destroy the Amalekites lest there be any doubt as to what totally destroy means He it is spelled out in detail do not spare them but kill man and woman child and infant ox and sheep, camel and donkey there's no gray area here God's will is cut and dried, black and white. Now my preference would be to simply move on from this and continue the story, but in the day in which we live, I don't think that's quite possible without saying something about this scorched earth policy that God employed at various times in the Old Testament. Our 21st century spirit of tolerance And our emphasis upon justice reform leave no room for such barbaric actions that God orders in this chapter. We don't employ the death penalty for the most heinous of crimes. In fact, we seem to be reluctant to even incarcerate violent criminals. Yet here we find God consigning innocent men, women, and children to extermination, People just trying to eke out a peaceful existence. What's going on here? Well, Amalek was by no means a peaceful or innocent people. In fact, they were totally perverted, a corrupt people practicing child sacrifice, sacred prostitution, and unmitigated violence. These people were the Taliban or the Isis of the ancient Near East. As one writer put it, to modern ears this sounds alarmingly like ethnic cleansing. This is not ethnic cleansing, it is ethical cleansing. Amalek was a grandson of Esau. His descendants had a long history of violent hostility towards the Israelites. In fact, when they were leaving Egypt, The Amalekites were the first group that opposed Israel and was a major threat to them. Because of that, God told Moses to write down a promise. And it was this. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus 17, 14. Hostilities toward Israel from this group continued in the book of Judges as they were conquering the land. Judges chapters 3, 6, and 7 all mention this hostility. 300 years have now passed. God has waited for centuries for these wicked people to fill up their rap sheet with all kinds of sinful behavior. He refused to act precipitously against them. His grace and mercy waited to see if they might repent of their sins. And turned from their evil behavior. But they never did. Now judgment day has arrived. But what about the animals God orders to be exterminated? I would assume the animals were included in the extermination. To communicate that even the the possessions of God's enemies. Sometimes can be tainted with sin. This is not unlike a statement in the book of Jude, verse 23, to the effect that some people are so wicked that we should hate even the clothes they wear. And that's in the New Testament, where God is supposed to be a God of love, even if he's a God of judgment in the Old Testament. But frankly, friends, there is much about God's love in both testaments, and there's much about his judgment in both By the way, if you object to God's judgment on the Amalekites, what are you going to do with a far greater judgment that is coming, which will make that one pale by comparison? In 2 Thessalonians 1, we read these words. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. C.S. Lewis wrote concerning hell, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it was in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. Friends, God's judgment on sinful people only seems unreasonable when we minimize our sin and our violation of His revealed will. Now, as our story unfolds, we discover that Saul chooses to obey only part of what God commands. He starts off okay. He raises a huge army to fight the Amalekites. He warns the Kenites to escape, no doubt by Samuel's instructions, so that they don't become collateral damage in this major battle. For the Kenites had been kind to Israel during their exodus wanderings. He then engages the Amalekites and defeats them totally. But he fails to do all that God commands. He eliminates everyone except Agag and the best of the animals. Why did Saul do this? Well, we're not told specifically But I think it's safe to say that he thought that God's commands weren't entirely reasonable. Regarding Agag, I can see him, I can imagine him saying to himself, this man Agag, he's a a bad dude and we probably ought, he deserves to die. But after all, I'm a king and if I'm ever captured, I will be killed. So we're going to spare him. And regarding the animals, I can imagine him thinking, I just don't understand why we should eliminate such a fine agricultural asset. Let's keep the best. And we'll even sacrifice some of them to the Lord. Uh, That should satisfy Samuel. But it doesn't. While Saul is trying to justify his actions to Samuel, the prophet interrupts him. Stop, he says. I will tell you what the Lord told me last night. The Lord sent you on a mission, saying, Go, devote to destruction these sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the word of the Lord? But Saul has the chutzpah to respond, But I did obey. He then recites the ways in which he did follow the instructions he was given. But he conveniently minimizes and rationalizes the ways in which he did not. God had said, don't spare any of them. And Saul spared some of them. That, friends, is blatant disobedience. I wonder how often we substitute partial obedience For full obedience. Let's take an example that relates to us today as much as it did to them in Old Testament times. God commands us to abstain from all kinds of sexual immorality, both heterosexual and homosexual. Sexual activity is designed for marriage and limited to marriage. One man, and one woman united until death separates them. The directions are unambiguous, but our culture scoffs at those directions. And even in the church, we find many trying to reinterpret and redefine God's standards for purity, rejecting those that don't seem reasonable. Entire denominations are doing that today as they reject biblical authority in favor of the culture's shifting sands of public opinion ordaining clergy who advocate positions that directly contradict God's word. This past week I came across an article in which the writer said the truth is we'll likely see more churches And denominations adopt the revisionist view of sexuality. But over time, the bankruptcy of this position will be evident. The churches and denominations that have gone in this direction have cratered. I want you to pay special attention to this sentence. Marriage, and he means biblical marriage, is a load-bearing wall in the house. You can't tear it down and keep the roof up. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It is central. It's the church's job to speak clearly and frankly to our culture's lies about marriage and about sexual sin and about abortion and about gender, especially as the emotional and psychological damage to our children is reaching epidemic proportions. At times, I know we get discouraged and wonder if the culture isn't winning this battle when the state of Kansas, not far from the buckle of the Bible belt, votes 60% to reject sensible restrictions on the killing of unborn children. Is there any hope for those of us who still care about God's commandments, including the commandment forbidding the taking of innocent human life. Yes, there is hope. Because when God offers a commandment, he also offers the resources we need to obey him, as he did with Saul in killing the Amalekites. I don't say it's easy to keep God's commandments. But it is possible, and it's also necessary if one wants to avoid his discipline and to live life to the fullest. I said earlier that spiritual defection is rarely, if ever, the result of just one action or one event. Saul's failure to be completely obedient is really part and parcel of a much larger pattern of behavior, In fact, I would like to suggest that Saul's substitution of partial obedience for full obedience is accompanied by seven other dangerous substitutions. First of all, he substitutes pride for humility. You see the evidence of pride after his victory over the Amalekites. Samuel is ready to deliver God's judgment on Saul, but he has to find him first. In verse 12, he is told, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. The NIV reads, he has set up a monument in his own honor. Not in God's honor, mind you, but in his own honor. Contrast that with the humility with which Saul started his career as a leader. When Samuel first spoke to him back in chapter 9 about the fact that he might become king he responded this way Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? And later when Samuel tried to find Saul to inaugurate him as king he was told that he has hidden himself among the baggage. Verse 22 of chapter 10. Saul did not have that problem anymore, problem of humility. He's begun to read his own press clippings and believe them. Secondly, he substitutes charisma for character. I see this between the lines in verse 13. When Samuel and Saul first meet after the victory over the Amalekites, Saul slaps the prophet on the back and says, What's up, Sam? Uh, God bless you, brother. Sure good to see you. Remember what you told me to do? I did it. And Samuel's response is classic. What then is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear and the lowing of the oxen? Sometimes we try to cover up deficiency in deficiencies in our character with a confident manner a hail fellow well met attitude i've known people in church who seem to be on cloud nine spiritually every sunday only to find out later that moral cancer had eaten away everything but the surface charisma is no substitute for character Thirdly, he substitutes blame and excuses for confession. In verse 15, Saul responds, the people spared the best of the sheep. In verse 21, the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen. Where else have we heard this kind of rationalizing and blame shifting? The woman you gave me, She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Adam blamed Eve Eve for it. And ultimately he blamed God because he's the one who gave Eve to him. This blame shifting is already a pattern in Saul's life. Do you remember last week from chapter 13 when he was caught offering a sacrifice contrary to God's command? He responded to uh, Samuel's uh, uh, rebuke when I saw that the men were scattering and that you Samuel did not come when you said you would I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering it's your fault Samuel you made me do it what a tragic thing when a person cannot acknowledge his sin even when he's confronted with it clearly Fourthly, he substitutes greed for gratitude. Look at Samuel's question in verse 19. Why did you pounce on the plunder? Saw, saw fortune in sheep and cattle, perhaps enough to put him and his administration on easy street for years to come. And the thing is, he doesn't have to deprive anyone else from it because the alternative is to destroy it. All it takes is a little disobedience. And greed gets the best of him. The alternative to greed, of course, is gratitude for what God has provided. He promises to meet our needs and to even go beyond that. Remember what Jesus said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. In fact, that's basically what Samuel told Saul back in chapter 13 when he offered that burnt offering contradicting God's command. Samuel said to him, You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, he would have established your kingdom, your dynasty over Israel for all time. We do not have to employ greed. We can Choose to be gracious, thankful, and show gratitude for what God has given us. Fifthly, Saul substitutes ritual for reality. In one of the greatest short speeches in the Bible, Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Friends, I don't know any concept in the Bible that is more important for us to grasp than this one because it reveals the difference between a life of performance and a life of true worship. God is simply not impressed with our church attendance, our tithing, our small group, involvement, our Christian bumper stickers, or anything else by way of symbolism or ritual if it doesn't come from a heart of obedience. Isn't that what David acknowledged in the passage that Joe read for our call to worship? In the middle of his great confession of sin with Bathsheba, David said, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David does not mean that sacrifices and offerings are not pleasing to God. God actually ordered them, commanded them in the Old Testament. Rather, he is saying they are not pleasing to God. If they are done for the wrong reasons, or with the wrong motive, or to impress others, they become meaningless rituals. Sixth, he substitutes fear of people for fear of the Lord. As we learned in our recent series on the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It speaks of the need to show awe and respect for our great God. Appropriate fear of God is a major motivating factor in the believer's life. But Saul is far more concerned about the fear of people than he is about the fear of the Lord. Notice verse 24. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. The NIV reads, I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. Isn't it amazing how often we become more afraid of people than of God? Teenagers can be more afraid of being rejected by their peers than of being disobedient to the standards of God. Adults can be more fearful of the disapproval of fellow workers For stands they know they should take than they are of God's disapproval of their silence. May God save us from fear of people and instill in us an appropriate fear of him. Those of you who know me well know that I love epitaphs and um, I've collected them over the years. I recently came across the description of a rather obscure character in the Bible. His name was Hanani, and here's the description of him in Nehemiah 7.2. He was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. That's about all we know about this man. A man of integrity who feared God more than most people do. I like that epitaph. It doesn't fit Saul. Does it fit us? And seven, he substitutes remorse for repentance. In verses 24 and 25, Saul finally admits that he has sinned. His back is against the wall and he really has no alternative. But I challenge you to compare his verbal confession with the confession of David in Chapter 51 of the Psalms. The words are similar, but the attitude and the spirit are so different. Psalms expressing remorse, sorrow for getting caught, not true repentance. Look again at his words in verse 30. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before. Israel. Even in the midst of his confession he is more concerned about his reputation before the people than before the Lord. We've seen seven additional steps to spiritual failure on Saul's part besides his substitution of partial obedience for full obedience. None of these are what we might call blatant felonies. Just little spiritual misdemeanors, but each contributes to to the defection of this leader who once had so much promise. Finally this morning, I want us to see that partial obedience carries consequences that are far-reaching and tragic. First of all, Saul's assignment is given to another The immediate assignment that God had given him to exterminate the Amalekites, Samuel takes over. He himself kills Agag. But more importantly, the long term assignment that God had given to Saul to be king over his chosen people is now officially taken away and promised to someone else. Verse 28 The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours, one who is better than you, which probably means one who is more obedient than you and has a greater heart for God. That turned out, of course, to be David. Now, if you've been reading ahead in the book of 1 Samuel, you know that Saul continued to be king for three more years after this incident. So when it says that the Lord has torn the kingdom from you today, it means that the decision has been made today. And it is irrevocable. Saul's removal was predicted back in chapter 13. It is determined here in chapter 15. It is actually carried out in chapter 31. Secondly, Saul's spiritual mentor grieves For him, but also abandons him. There's a lot of pathos in those words in verse 35, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. Samuel had such great hopes for this young boy when he inaugurated him as the first king of Israel. He prayed for him regularly. He warned him, he encouraged him, he even delivered discipline upon him. Earlier in our chapter, in verse 11, when he first learned of Saul's disobedience, we're told that Samuel was angry and cried out to the Lord all night long. I don't know whether he was angry at Saul, angry at God, or just angry at the situation, But Samuel was obviously very distraught that his investment in Saul had come to naught. And now Samuel takes his hands off Saul. Maybe there's someone here today who has been prayed for, discipled, encouraged, and even disciplined by someone who loves you. Maybe a parent or a pastor or a mentor, or just a friend. But up to this point, your response has been rebellion. Friend, don't wait until that person throws in the towel. More importantly, don't wait until God throws in the towel. Because that also happens in our story. As verse 35 tells us, the Lord regretted. That he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, we could get hung up over the theological questions that naturally arise from such a statement. How could a sovereign God get caught in a situation where he regrets something that he himself brought about? And especially does that question come to mind because of verse 29, which says that the glory of Israel, clearly a reference to God, will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regrets. I think those theological questions have answers. And I'll be glad to talk to anyone afterwards if you want to explore that. But I want us this morning to come to grips with the tragic results that emanate from that statement. That God regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. From this point on there is no evidence of God's involvement. In Saul's life. It's as though the Lord takes his hands off. And leaves Saul. To his own devices. And the slide into moral decay. From this point on. Is fast and furious. Until Saul's life. Ends in suicide. The worship team sang a song. At the beginning of our service. Some of you were here for it. It was called. Ancient words, holy words, long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Friends, those ancient words are God's word to us. They are his infallible inspired word that contains many unambiguous commands For our daily lives. Let's not fool ourselves thinking God is impressed with the little tokens of obedience that we throw at him. Partial obedience. Partial obedience is really disobedience. Jesus, you know, went all the way for us. He became obedient to death. Even death on the cross so that our sins might be paid for and that we might become right with the Father. I urge you today to obey the gospel. By that I mean put your full faith and trust in what Jesus did for you. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we are told in 1 Corinthians 10 that these Old Testament accounts were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. May we internalize these lessons so that we don't experience the spiritual defection of Saul ourselves. Help us to respond to your warnings with complete obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.